The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Thanks for joining us today on our podcast about anecdotes from practicing interventional spine medicine. These topics are designed to be a casual discussion about differences and anecdotes in practice. We hope you all enjoy learning from your colleagues who express their reasoning for why they do what they do in this podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Renee Rosati. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Furman, Fellowship Director of the Interventional Spine Fellowship at OSS Health, Orthopedic Specialists in York, Pennsylvania. Hey, Thank thanks for, for coming. Me. Oh, this I'm looking forward to it. This should be fun. Well, first off, I just want you to take some time and introduce yourself to all of our listeners. Tell us about yourself. All right, Mike Furman. I live in York, Pennsylvania, where I uh, practicing at a group called OSS Health. Uh, it's a multi-specialty group, primarily of orthopedic surgeons, and there's uh, six physiatrists who are pain management physiatrists, musculoskeletal specialists. We do. We do the whole musculoskeletal realm, mostly spine. We do a lot of ultrasound and musculoskeletal ultrasound diagnostic and therapeutic ultrasound-based procedures as well. Um, I have a fellowship that I've had for uh, many years, decades, and um, I've trained over 100 fellows. And uh, we pride ourselves with our fellowship. It's kind of like a family. And uh, that fellowship, we we train them. They come for a year, um, and we actually have uh, courses every other year all over the all over the globe and uh, the past fellows who care to join us. And we have, that's where the family gets together and we see where everyone's grown and what they're doing now. And that's been I've, good fun. To I've years. definitely been witness to that. If you guys go to any SIS or NAS meetings, you could throw a rock and hit a fellow that graduated from Dr. Furman's program. They're always around and they always have a really good time and they have a little reunion Um at each of those, and it's very special. I am not a, a Furman fellow. Do you have a nickname uh, for them? Do I have a nickname? Yeah. Um, mm, I don't know. That's a good question. We have to come up with a nickname for the fellows. Yeah. You know, I don't know. No, I don't. Furman uh, fellows. I, I, no, I, I would say that, but some of my partners would not be happy. If you oh, you're Furman right. Fellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I. Uh, but they are my kids. They are my kids. So I had a mentor in medical school, and his name's Omar Salad, and. Every med student that rotated with him got a T-shirt that said "Foo Friends uh, of Omar," and so cool. you know he's got cool. Foo stars around the globe. Gotcha. Anyway, gotcha. Um, we'll get back on topic. So today's <laughs> topic is about anticoagulation and antiplatelets in spine interventions, and this is a very hot topic. This topic is always well attended at the conferences, and we thought we would share with you from our leading expert who um, actually just published his paper last night on this. And so tell us a little bit, bit about your research, Dr. Furman. Well, it all starts with, I, I like to be dramatic when I do a lecture. So it starts with one day I walk into clinic and they say, Dr. Furman, your patient got, uh, not clinic, I walked into the pain center and they said, you're, you're such a clock patient uh, canceled. Well, actually the family called and canceled the patient. I'm like, oh, Okay, uh, what happened? They go, well, actually, your patient died last night. I'm like, you know, that, that gives you pause. Oh, uh, were they like on anticoagulation or anything like that? Yes, but don't worry, they stopped it. I'm like, oh, and then you look into it and you find out that this patient 
uh, had stopped a, a you know an anticoagulant uh, before procedure. And I never told them to do it. They weren't even my patient. They were sent by somebody else. And then I start my slide off by saying, so this patient died for a procedure I'm about to perform that I never told them to stop the medicine. Uh, am I responsible if I never met this patient? And forget, am I responsible? I'm not talking about just responsible medically or I mean legally. I'm, 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 re I'm am I responsible in my heart ethically? And and it just kind of was the beginning of my 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 doubt my dive into this where we all stop these medications because we're all scared of what I call the boogeyman. The boogeyman is being the dreaded epidural hematoma, which we all hear about, and we're all scared about that boogeyman of the epidural hematoma. But the question really is, um, how many of those hematomas really exist? And we're stopping a lot of medications because of their, and they're on it for a reason. And you, you're all, we're all doctors out there. We understand. So if you, if we really look at it, uh, there's even a study out of a procedures by a Japanese journal where there was, um, uh, let me see, they they um, they did 64,000 interventions and had uh, no hemorrhagic procedural, uh, no, they had one procedural complication. And our data is, we had zero epidural hematomas in 6,100 6 6, patients on anticoagulation, antiplatelet agents, and none of them had hematomas. And uh, I can get into the details of the study, but I'll just say we know it because we did a rigorous chart review. Every one of these patients, we did a chart review. We either followed them out for up to three months. If we couldn't follow them out, uh, we um, looked at outside hospitals and uh, at obituaries. And we got down to it where we only had uh, less than uh, four, three or four loss to follow up from that whole population. And uh, uh, we know there's no hematomas in that group. Uh, that's both continuing and stopping it. Uh, we actually went a little farther uh, where I said, okay, that's that's the rigorous deep dive. And we know there's no hematomas in that. And then we said, geez, if I look at all the codes in that same time period, how many hematomas did we have? And we had none. And that same time period of so many years, we had 64,000 interventions and had no hematomas. Okay. So we had no, none of those. Now I'm not saying no one gets hematomas. I'm talking about clinical hematomas. Clinical means they called and they said, you know, my leg's weak. My, I'm, I can't move. And clinical hematoma is so bad that they had to be evacuated. I'm not saying people should not be scared of hematomas, but I'm saying it's a very low number. And our data is somewhat similar to Andrew's data, where he had the same issue where they had no hematomas. But then um, you have to say, okay, how about thrombotic events? And we did have in our population, uh, we had um, in our ceased group, we had about, uh, this part's not published yet. We had 18 uh, ischemic comp complications. And then in the, in the maintained group, there was 24 ischemic complications. There was four deaths in the ceased group and two deaths in the maintained group. So people are sick. So I just told you about 6,000 patients and uh, none of them had a hematoma, but of those we had uh, uh, double digit, we had, tw we had uh, 20 to 50 complications that were ischemic in that population. So that's real numbers. And that data is not published yet. But my point is it comes down to risk versus risk. It's not risk versus benefit, and it's not, geez, but Azra says this and all this. It's, it comes down to this. When you're a patient and you're about to do a procedure, you're just, I was training my fellowship to just blindly stop 
their medications because they're on it. And the reality is, if you blindly stop medication, you're going to have complications that you don't even know about. Here's the reality. I didn't know about these 30 or 40 complications until we did a deep dive and started looking deep into the charts and going to the hospitals, things like that, to find out that within the 90 days after those procedures, they've had these ischemic complications. You wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't call you. Patient wouldn't call you if you had an epidural, if they had an epidural with you. A week later, they had a stroke. They wouldn't think of they wouldn't think about calling you because they didn't. Well, they wouldn't have related a stroke to your epidural. They wouldn't have related an MI to your epidural. They wouldn't related a, a death MI to your epidural steroid injection or your facet block. All they know is they their mom and dad had this episode or they had this episode. So it comes down to risk versus risk. So here we are, scared of the epidural hematoma. In our data, we had. None. And you could argue that we just, you know, statistically, we don't have a large enough number to capture all the epidural hematomas, but we did have a large enough number to pick up all these ischemic complications. So people have to rethink what they're doing about whether they're, it's really wise to stop this medicine just willy-nilly. And people say, well, I don't make that decision. I asked my family doctor or my cardiologist to make that decision. Well, when you reach out to your colleague and you say, may I stop this? I'm dumping it on you. That's not fair because they think you need them to stop it. And do you need them to stop it? So that's kind of a summary of my thoughts on the subject. Now, I know what's going to happen. People are going to say, well, that's not ASRA guidelines. Forget ASRA guidelines for a second. I'm not saying I disagree with ASRA in certain respects. If I am going to choose to stop a medicine, I am going to follow their guidelines of how long to stop my medicine. Okay. If I'm doing a stimulator or if I'm doing a, uh, or if they are going to get a catheter or if they are going to get uh, anesthesia. But all the anesthesia literature is originally based on catheter-based procedures. And that's what that was based on. And we're not saying to do the stimulators and the mild procedures or even necessarily cervical interlaminar. We'll talk about that in a second. But the reality is I want people to think about some magical questions. So when the nurse knocks on your door and say, hey, they're on Coumadin, don't say, stop it for this long. Say, why are they on it? Can I, do they need this procedure? That's a key question. Do they really need, need is the emphasis, right? So if you're just saying, well, they have a little bit of back pain. I'm going to do an epidural. Why not? You better think twice about that, right? And then the other question is, can I do something else? So I would do a transframinal instead of an interlaminar. Okay, because this, the interlaminar is in a central contained area, and that's where your hematoma, if it developed, could happen. So I want people to rethink this question of, can I stop it? Uh, and, and just try to revisit that whole question and think a little bit differently about it than to just say, here's what Azra says. So that was a quick summary of my thoughts on this subject. Yeah, I think that's all very well said. Now, when I was in training as a resident several years ago, I knew that you had this data. You had been collecting it for decades. So how many years have you been researching this? Oh, geez. We, we started this about, uh, it, it's, it's about four or five years worth of data. And it's just been, we've been sitting on it because we hadn't published it yet. And I don't have the exact dates in front of me. I'm sorry. I, popped, I apologize for that. No, no. But I... it's, it's many, it's many years worth of data. And it started with one of my good friends, um, sons was a undergraduate and he teases me to this day. And my friend does, not my his son, and was looking for a research project. And I came up with this idea of, I thought this would be a quickie. Like every project we ever start in research is, is oh, I have a quick idea. I said, just look through. We have we have a, a, a form that we generate that we can track who's on it, who got 
who's on the anticoagulation anticoagulation agent before the procedure. And we had we had him. I said, just look through all this data. Tell me if they stopped it. Tell me if they started it. Go to the chart. See if they had any complications. And I thought, you know, this will be a quick summer project. And it turned into years of data collection. And we're finally now publishing it. And that guy who's then an undergraduate is about to graduate from medical school right now. And wow. my, my, buddy, my buddy teases me. So it's taken a while to really... And I, I can tell all sorts of stories about research, about when you think your data is all clean and you do little checks on it, you realize there's something wrong and that's not worth our discussion. But we had to make sure the data was extremely clean before we are ready to publish it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely use some of the ASRA guidelines. I have their COAGS app. It's very useful. Um, and I think that it's nice that you're about to publish this data that you've been sitting on because I think the general public that don't know you aren't able to read this and they didn't know that you were, you know, about to come out with this. So it's great right. to hear that it's available. So we're so we're gonna have a series of papers. The first one came out today on cervical thoracic. And I don't want to be misinterpreted. We don't have enough data for each procedure and the risks, the actual thrombotic events for each procedure. So if we just looked at the cervical epidural data, there wasn't enough thrombotic events in that population to put that in the paper and make a conclusion. So we're going to, so that people understand each one separately, we're going to roll out a series of papers that says cervical thoracic patients, we did this many hundred procedures and had no hematoma. Then we're going to do all the facet procedures together, then et cetera. We're going to do a bunch like that. And then we're going to put it all together and publish all of it together with the thrombotic events. And then we don't know where we're going to hopefully get published in a, a, a nice journal. I can't name where we'd like to get it in. But we'd like to get it really uh, and get that out there. But we want to first get the the individual projects. And the idea was, if we just do one article, it won't be uh, appreciated for each particular procedure as well as it is the way we're doing it now. So the first one that was just published in the IPM, Interventional Pain Medicine, the new SIS journal, it just published actually literally yesterday. Um, and that was just all of our data on cervical. I see we, we put thoracic and cervical together for interlaminars and there's no hematomas. Now you can't say, look at that article and say, we're not, we're saying you can go do it because there's no hematomas. It's only several hundred. And of those, uh, of those five or 600, only so many were stopped and it's only so many had Coumadin. So we don't want people to jump to conclusions and we put that in the article, but we're just trying to put it out there that there is no hematomas there. That's all. Or cervical and thoracic, which procedure? Interlaminar. Interlaminar. Okay. Yeah. That's the one that just published okay. yesterday. <laughs> right. Um, so I'm going to read off a list of things that you continue anticoagulation on or antiplatelet agents, just for our listeners to know what Dr. Furman and his fellows in his practice, they continue patients on if they decide that the risks are worth keeping them on. And I, I, do, I do need to do a caveat before you read them. Go ahead. If someone is just taking baby aspirin on their own, not recommended by their doctor, I have no problem with them stopping their aspirin before these procedures because it's not needed. Same thing with your NSAIDs, all the things Azure would say. Anything that could potentially cause a bleed, if they aren't in a rush and they want to go ahead and wait, they're willing to wait a little longer, we would stop any of these uh, non-medically non, non needed medications before their procedure. We don't need them to stop if they're willing to wait, if they mm -hmm. really want to be a little safer. Mm -hmm. But I don't even think they have to worry about that. But I'm just adding that that's something to keep in mind. When you say, I don't want to be cavalier that we say, just stay on all this stuff. But stuff that's medically needed, someone who has a, a stent 
and they're on Plavix that was placed three months ago, or someone who has an MI and history of DVT and PE and they're on Coumadin for a reason, or if they had a, a mechanical heart valve and they're on Coumadin for a reason, we're not going to go tell them to stop it because they can have their, their associated thrombotic events. Yeah, thank so you. Now, That's good yeah. clarification. Yeah. All right. So he continues um, the blood thinners and the following medicines. We've got cervical transforaminals, cervical medial branch blocks, cervical RFAs, cervical intraarticular facet joint injections. Then we'll move on to the lumbars, lumbar transforaminal steroids, lumbar medial branch blocks, lumbar RFAs, lumbar facet joint interventions, caudal epidural injections, sacral like S1, transferminal injections, and sacroiliac joint injections. Yeah, we have to be careful because I don't do that many caudals. And I would probably, if I could, change a caudal to a transferminal. Because I want you to realize everything you read off except for the caudal is not really in the midline contained area. The caudal would potentially could cause an hematoma. So I want to clarify that. Okay. So yeah, I... if there was a bleed from a caudal, it could lead to a, a, a bad hematoma. So let's try to do a procedure that's not going to be necessarily a mid, uh, a, a, a central axial. So if someone had, for example, cervical transferminal and had a bleed, God forbid, we don't even hear about it because it would just be, if anything, an, uh, a bleed near the nerve root and maybe a radicular uh, neuropraxia. But we don't hear about those. Right. On the other hand, you do hear about the ones that are central for cervical interlaminar. So although I published data, said there's not hematomas for that, we'd rather switch to a less. So don't I'm not being cavalier about the interlaminars. I'm just saying you can most likely switch most of these. OK, mm -hmm. I think at some of the conferences I've attended just from a raise of hands, I think most physicians will consider the caudal kind of like an interlaminar because it's in the yeah. central space. Exactly. Um, in so that respect. In that respect, yeah. The takeaway points that if you do need to stop their antiplatelet or anticoagulation, you stop it for things like spinal cord stimulators, mild procedures. What about regular lumbar or cervical interlambs? Okay, so now we'd be careful when you say, I stop it. Now it becomes a discussion with the patient, and then I do involve the prescribing physician. Got it. Because there may be a point when we may say, you know, we don't really need to, first of all, it better be a patient that really needs what you're about to do. And need is a, is a, is a tough word. And, you know, if I could usually theoretically do a transferaminal instead of an interlaminar, I would, I might do that, right? For lumbar or cervical. Mm -hmm. For a stimulator, it gets very tricky because do they need a stimulator, right? So then it gets to the question of, let's discuss this with your treating doctor, then some people do get into maybe uh, doing a bridge with, say, Lovenox, but that you definitely have to coordinate with the family doc, with a treating physician and decide whether it's important enough. Use, let's use spinal cord stimulator as a, as, a, as, a, as a challenge because it's not just placement of the stimulator because when, when the problems would occur is when the wire is traversing into that epidural space, going in or going out. So it's not just putting it, stopping it from placing the stimulator. It's stopping it for pulling the lead at the end of the trial. And you got to be very careful and make sure you're coordinating the whole plan with this. Or you do a short trial and leave it off. But now there, these patients may even be in a hypercoagulable state when you do this. So all of this, all these things we're talking about has to be discussed not only with the with, with it's not just me deciding, it's discussing with the patient and involving 
then I do involve the prescribing physician. It's not my decision. Then I say to the patient, you need to realize that if we stop your blood thinner, you run the risk of your whatever it's treating, of, of your of getting a stroke or, or your DVT or your PE or whatever it may be. Do you really want to, are you able to stop this medicine? They go, oh, I stop it all the time for this and that. I'm like, okay, but you need to make sure you're having this conversation with the patient that they want you to look into whether they can stop it. And then you do coordinate it. Sometimes it even comes down to timing. They could say, well, you know, I just got a stent placed five months ago in my heart. My doctor told me I'll be off this Plavix uh, at se six or seven months. Or they may say, I may be off it in a year. I say, why don't we, can you wait till it's off of it so that we can do it? So it's not just a yes, no question. It becomes a, it depends question because there's a lot of factors here that it's not just, yes, I stop it or yes, I continue it because there's a lot more involved with this it's a it's a discussion with the patient and involving the doctor now i once gave i gave a there's actually a a uh, an ask the expert for sis that you can members of sis can get for free where i discussed this with two other experts uh, byron schneider and one of my past fellows gene Techmeister, on this very topic and then while i was doing the ask the expert it was live people typed questions one guy said well i hate lovenox it's a pain in the ass well okay a lot of things we do in medicine is a pain Right. But the reality is doing good care the right way is a pain, but it's what has to be done. That's the bottom line. You got to do it the right way. Absolutely. And that webinar that he referred to, that's on the SIS website for SIS members. It's been recorded. So if you want to hear about anticoagulation in greater detail, you can, you know, log on to there as well as read Dr. Furman's paper that just got published last night and um, <laughs> keep a lookout for uh, more of the papers as they get published on his different topics. Uh, we're going to wrap up for today. If you guys have any topics you want us to discuss, please send us a message on Instagram. That's how we were collecting things. Um, it, it's NAS spine, N-A-S-S-S-P-I-N-E. So there's three S's in there. Dr. Furman, thank you for your time. Thank you for, you know, being so wonderful and, you know, thank you for dedicating all his time. Thank He's you. definitely passionate about it. You know, you'll find him at every meeting topic, talking about this topic. And um, we're grateful for all the research that you've done. All right. Well, thank you.